Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16, and the word of the Lord reads, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. William Carlyle once wrote, Evangelism is the perpetual task of the whole church and not the peculiar hobby of certain of its members. So one of the greatest promises um, of the Christian faith is the promise that God will always be with us. That that's the truth, that we are never really alone. That we have not been forgotten. That we are not isolated. Even in the darkest moments of our lives, even in the deepest parts of our despair, God is with us. In fact, Jesus himself says he will be with us. It's what it says in the text today, that he will be with us. And if you were in Christ, this is a promise then you would be holding on to. It's a promise that we have all leaned on. I know that I have. It's a promise that should give you great comfort, especially when things are difficult. When the world doesn't make any sense, when all seems to be lost, when everything seems, when everyone around you seems to abandon you, the promise is... A rock-solid foundation of hope under your feet. The promise that Christ himself is always with you. And so if you're a believer, then you hold on to that promise. You cherish that promise. You lean on that promise. And you trust it. And we do so for good reason. Because it's true. The promise is as true as any promise God has ever made. Jesus, God who came in the flesh, is with those who trust Him by faith. His Spirit lives in them. And we should then be able to rejoice always in that and take comfort in that fact. But the thing that you and I need to understand, that this particular promise that Jesus makes here in Matthew to always be with us, This promise has a context. You see, Jesus didn't simply say that this, say this, he didn't simply make this promise in an isolated statement. He didn't just say, you know what, guys? No matter what happens in your life, I'm going to be with you. I mean, it is true, but that's not what he said. He made this promise in connection with something else that he said. There is a context to this promise, and that context is the Great Commission. 
The command that Christ gives all Christians to go out into the world and make disciples. And the reason why this is important is because many of us, many of us will tend to gravitate towards the parts of the scripture that really speak to us and the parts that really make us feel good and the parts that we really, really like. But then we tend to ignore the parts of the scripture that don't really appeal to us or don't really speak to us or the parts that we really don't like. We look at Jesus' promise in this text here and we are willing to say, yes, that promise that he's with us, that's for us. And we receive that promise with great joy, but then many Christians will try to then separate this promise from its context and the command that Jesus gives to go out into the world and make disciples. I mean, because everybody likes the part, right, above Jesus being with us no matter what. We all like that part. But not everybody likes the idea that we are all, that we are all called to be on mission for Christ. In fact, there are many people who would deny that either explicitly or implicitly that they are called to take part in the great commission of making disciples. They would say, yes, Jesus is with me, but no, I'm not called to do that. That's not my calling. Some will even say that the command to make disciples of the nations is actually a command that Jesus gave only to the apostles, and it was just for them in that that age. It's not really for, for our time and it's not for the church at large. Some will say that it doesn't apply today. But here's the inescapable truth about this. The promise for Jesus to be with us, the promise that he makes here is connected to the command for us to go out into the world and make disciples. Both of these things are simultaneously true, and both of those things are for us. Jesus' command to make disciples of all the nations Right? And in light of that, he promises to be with us. He promises to be there. He promises to strengthen us, to enable us to carry out this mission. The promise and the command are both for us. Not to mention, as we talked about last week, you were saved by the grace of God, but you were not saved simply for you. Your salvation, though it involves you, and it certainly benefits you, ultimately it's not just about you. Actually, it's all about God. You were saved by God for God because he created you, and he saved you for his glory. Why? Because everything that God does, he does for his own glory, which means you were saved then for his plans and his purposes. And his plan and purpose for you, as we talked about, is to participate in the mission of Christ, which means the mission to save souls. Remember, as Paul said, Christ Jesus came in the world to do what? To make people happy. No, that's not what he said, right? Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, to save sinners. That's the mission that we're called to. Now, if you weren't here last week, we covered a lot of ground about this particular subject, and I would encourage you to take a little time this week and go back and listen, um, and it'll help answer some of the questions that maybe we're going to skip over today. You can do that by going to your YouTube page or you know, Facebook or SoundCloud, and the details of that are in the bulletin. But the mission of Christ, the reason why he came to earth is to save sinners. And that is the mission that you and I are called to. 
As John Wesley said, you have one business on earth to save souls. Now, the question that would naturally follow that then is how? I mean, what does that look like? How do we participate in the mission of Christ? How do we get involved in the mission of, of saving sinners? Because the truth is we're not, we're not Christ, right? which means we're not going to have the ability to die for another person's sins. We're not going to be able to live a perfect, righteous life and then, and then offer that to someone else on their behalf before God. So obviously, what Christ accomplished in the mission and what we accomplish are not going to be the same. There's going to be something different. Christ died and rose again, making it possible for people to be saved by faith and to be reconciled to God. That is the part of the mission that he accomplished. That's something that we cannot do. So then, what is the part that we play? How is it that we are to participate in this mission to save the lost? Because I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, I understand the political climate that's around us. I understand what's happening in the world around us. We all can see the handwriting on the, on the wall with respect to the way the governments are behaving. We can all see how the nations will continue to, to make war on one another. We will continue to see that there will be one natural disaster, disaster after the next. We will continue to see poverty in the world. We will continue to see the things that we've seen for thousands of years. Sometimes it's going to get much worse. But in all of that, the hope of the world is nothing other than Jesus Christ. As the Bible tells us that it's, what good is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul? What good is it to live a pain-free, problem-free life here and now if in the end you step off into eternity and meet, meet the judge of all judges still covered in your sin? The most important mission that we could be a part of is the mission to save the lost. So how do we play a part in that? Well, that's what we're going to begin talking about today. What is it? What does being on mission look like? And understand, this is a really big question, and there's, there's really a lot to flesh out here. And, we're, and today, we're not going to be able to cover it all. We'll actually start the conversation with what Jesus has to say about this. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus lays out for the disciples, not down to the detailed instructions, but the framework for how we are to take part in the mission of Christ. He gives us an outline from which to work as a church and as individuals. Right? And he does so in this part of the scripture known as the Great Commission. Now understand, the words Great Commission don't actually appear in the text. It might appear in the heading of your Bible, right? but that was not part of the original text. Right? Even though those words don't appear in the original text, though, it does describe what we're talking about. In fact, the word commission is defined as an authorization or command to act in a prescribed manner or perform prescribed acts. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He has authorized us and, com and commanded us to do something very specific. He gives us very clear orders to follow here. So it is a commission. And the scope of this commission, if you're paying attention to the text, you'll see the scope is not just simply your neighborhood. The scope of this commission is not just the town of Boron or the state of California. The scope of this commission is the entire world. And so it is truly a great commission because it's a gigantic commission. 
And in His Great Commission, Jesus outlines for us the duties and responsibilities that we are to operate under as we strive to fulfill this mission. And we find this Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. And beginning in verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. And just so you know, the reason why it says eleven is because Judas has, has, yes, he's left the building. That's correct. (laughs) It's a polite way to say that. So there are eleven, and they went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them, And said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The first thing I think that we have to take note of is, before we talk the specifics of the mission anyway, is the foundation on which our mission is built. What is our mission built on? It is very clear here. What is it that makes the words of Christ binding on us when he gives them? And the answer is quite simple. The authority of Jesus Christ. That's what makes it binding. Our mission in the world around us is rooted in the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Notice he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been granted to him. Not just some authority. All authority. Authority. All authority in heaven, all authority on everything on earth, every bit of creation, authority over all the animals, over all people, over all nations, over all kingdoms, even over things like the laws of physics. He has authority over history and authority over every molecule in the universe. Jesus has authority over everything. And this is vitally important for us to understand. The Great Commission is founded on the authority of Christ. He has the authority to give us this kind of commission. I mean, the truth is, if someone is going to give you a direct order, if someone's going to tell you how you ought to live your life, if someone is going to direct your actions, they need to have the authority to do so. For example, if somebody walks into your place of employment and begins to offer you direction and order you around, the first question you're going to ask is, who are you? And what makes you think you have the authority to tell me that? Right? It's just like when you were a kid on the playground, and some adults come walking up to you and start telling you what to do, and you're like, wait a minute, you're not my mama. Right? Mama has authority, not you. If someone's going to give you Direction. If somebody's going to give you an order, someone's going to put you on mission, that someone, if they're going to change the course of your life, they need to have the authority to do so. And Jesus says, I have all of that authority. All of it. After his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus was given by the Father supreme authority. He was given total sovereignty. By the way, if you remember when Jesus was being tempted by Satan, one of the things that Satan offered him was the kingdoms of the world because he supposed he had the authority over those things. Christ didn't take him up as his offer because he already knew he had the authority. And that authority was demonstrated in his resurrection. And this is important for two reasons. First, theological, and second, practical. 
The first reason, theologically speaking, has to do with who Jesus is, and the second one mean, has to do with how we respond to that, practically speaking. So let's begin with the, the theological reason. Christ the Son was given authority by God the Father, which means Christ is completely sovereign, which helps us to understand an inescapable, essential truth about who Christ is. Christ is the truth about the very nature of the gospel itself. The reason why Jesus can have the authority that he has and he can be completely sovereign is because he, Jesus, is the Son of God. He is actually God in the flesh. The reason why Jesus has all authority is because he is God incarnate, that he is fully divine. The foundation of this text, the foundation of the gospel, the foundation of the Great Commission, and the foundation of your salvation itself is who Christ is. It's his identity. And the thing that we need to remember and as we share the gospel with the rest of the world who wants to make minor little tweaks and changes, we have to affirm and understand that Jesus is not some created being. He never has been. He always has been from eternity past. He is the great I am. That means he was never an angel, which means he was never some man who then found a way to work himself up to godhood. He has always been God. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's the foundation of his authority. Jesus is the divine son of the king, which is the widespread and compelling testimony of the New Testament. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 1, we're told, in the beginning was what? The word, and the word was with God, and the word was. Very clearly, you cannot even twist the, the Greek around to say anything else. The word was God. And if there's any question at all about who the word was, in verse 14, John fills it in for us and says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The deity of Christ, the fact that, that he is God in the flesh, is an absolute, established, essential truth that is found throughout the New Testament, and it's the foundation of the gospel itself. God himself came down to save you. That's why he is sovereign and in control. That's why Jesus has the sovereignty and the power. And even his followers understood this fact, by the way. If we're told in this text that his followers worshiped him, notice it says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. This is important. This is one of those things that you can't escape when you're trying to twist and turn away from the deity of Christ because these are Jewish men very devout in their faith, and there was only one they could worship without being labeled blasphemers. They, they had to worship God. But these men, when they encountered the risen Christ, they gave him worship that was due only to God. And notice, Jesus doesn't stop them. He doesn't say, don't do that. He actually receives their worship. Now, when we read the New Testament, what we find is that there are other people in the Bible that, that actually were at least momentarily worshipped by other people. Other people attempted to worship them. And time and time again, you'll see it in the, in the New Testament, they say what? Don't do that. Don't do that. 
In fact, Paul and Silas almost tore their own clothes. Peter said, don't do that. Even an angel in the book of Revelation tells John, what? (laughs) Get up, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. But notice Jesus doesn't say any of those things. He receives their worship. He allows them to worship Him. Why? Because He is God in the flesh. And because of that, He has authority over them. And with that authority, He commands them and us to go forward to make disciples of the nations. And He tells them to baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And this is important because, because this name also then speaks to who Jesus is and the nature of God Himself. The thing that we need to realize is Jesus uses really precise language here. This is one of those things that's really easy to overlook when you read it in English because you can read right past the details. But he says that we're to baptize others in the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, plural. I don't know if you've ever really noticed this detail before. You have the name, which is singular, but that name is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, plural. What we need to realize is this is an important theological truth here. The name in this text reveals the triune nature of God. This is one of those things that we as Christians affirm because this is the the overwhelming witness of the New Testament. There is one name. There is one God who exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are all one essence but three distinct persons. God the Father, according to His divine decree, through the power of the Holy Spirit, sent God the Son into the world to live the perfect life of righteousness that you couldn't live and to die for the penalty of our sins and then rose Him from the grave, proving that sin and death have been conquered. And then God the Father gives to God the Son total authority, sovereignty over everything because He is God in the flesh. That's the theological part of the truth. Now let's talk practically speaking. Because Jesus, because he is God in the flesh and because he is all, he has all authority, what does that mean for us? It means that he's the king. I don't think it is any clearer than that. He's the king. If he has all authority and he is the sovereign, then he is the king, he is the boss. He is the one who has authority. Which means when he says is the law. What he says is is the truth. And so when he says something, our response ought to be, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And then do it. When he says to love your neighbor as yourself, we ought to say, yes, Lord. When he says that we are to forgive as we've been forgiven, we ought to say, yes, Lord. When he says, love your enemies, we go, really? No. We say, yes, Lord. When he says, take up your cross and deny yourself daily and follow me, we need to say, yes, Lord. Jesus has all authority over us. And because of that, we we are to go where he leads and do what he says. We're to obey the call that he has given us in our lives. And the Great Commission is a calling from Jesus for us all. We are all called to it. 
We are all called to be on mission to make disciples. This is what he says here in Matthew. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Church family, this is where we need to lean in and really hear what God is speaking to us. It's really easy for us to then put on our Sunday attitudes and then walk out of here, you know, and then forget what we're hearing. All of us, you and me, every Christian that lives is called to be on mission for Christ by making disciples. That is the truth. But then how do we fulfill this mission? How do, how do we do that? I mean, because it seems like such a big thing. How, like, I don't have the power to change anybody's heart. I don't have the power to actually save anyone. Not to mention, most of us are pretty much terrified nowadays to talk to people. I mean, some people are willing to just talk to anybody. I mean, my dad will talk to a fence post if it would stand still long enough, you know? But, but most of us are really quite content to, to go out in the world and put our face in our little screens and then just ignore the world around us. Most of us are just quite okay with just getting along with everybody at, at Thanksgiving and not even mentioning things about faith. How do we, how do we fulfill this, this great commission? It seems like such a big thing. Well, actually, there, there, there are two things we need to consider. First of all, there's the big picture strategic perspective and then there's the ground level tactical, right? Rubber meets the road kind of perspective for the mission. Let's talk about the strategic part first. From a big picture perspective, what we need to understand is that Jesus is communicating the outline for how we are to, to reach the world. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. What we need to see here is there's three basic components to the Great Commission. There are three major components to making disciples, and that begins with evangelism. That is witnessing, that is sharing the gospel with other people, helping people to come to faith in Christ. The fact is a person cannot follow Christ until they understand the gospel and put their trust in Christ. I've heard people say before, I'm just trying to get them to follow Jesus, right? Then they can believe. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. Because the places that, that Christ is going to call Christians into, you will not go unless you trust him. You will not follow Christ unless you actually believe. So step one is we have to help people believe. How do we help them to believe? We've got to share with them the gospel. People will not follow Christ until they believe the good news, and they won't believe the good news until they hear the good news. Right. And so even though the word evangelism isn't used in this text, it's implied in what Jesus is saying about making disciples. We need to make converts of the faith. And so it begins with evangelism. Because you're not going to make disciples without sharing the gospel and then leading them to faith in Christ. And so the first part is to make disciples. Uh, the, the, excuse me. The first part of making disciples is evangelism. 
And what that means is you and I are then called to be evangelists. Whether we like it or whether we don't. Whether we want to believe it or not, we are all called in our own very unique way to be evangelists. All of us. We're to go out into the world and share the hope of Christ with those around us. That's our part of the mission, and I understand. Some people are just really gifted for that. Some people are really, really, really good at this. Some people are really, really comfortable with this. And there's, and there can be some who will reach a lot of people. It's just going to feel natural for them. But all of us, every single one of us, are to be involved in evangelism by sharing the hope of Christ with other people. Right? By the way, I want you to be really clear. Just because somebody has a, with, with the supposed gift of evangelism doesn't mean that they actually reach a lot of people. They might be really, really good at speaking publicly and maybe moving people emotionally to make a decision, but it doesn't mean that they're actually really reaching people. In fact, the vast majority of people come to faith not because of some evangelist who has a persuasive sermon to, to give. Most people come to faith because of individual people who, through their lives, share the hope of Christ one-on-one, person-to-person, taking the time to love somebody where they are and telling them about Jesus. So yes, every single one of us are to be involved in evangelism and sharing the hope of Christ with other people. That's number one. Number two right, is baptism. The second part of making disciples is baptism. Once they believe, they need to be baptized. Now, understand, you individually are probably not called to administer believer's baptism. That's reserved for the officers of the church. But understand what, what baptism actually means here. Baptism is a picture of a believer identifying with a death and resurrection, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And it's an outward symbol of an inward reality that symbolizes two basic things. The first thing it symbolizes is the believer's union with Christ. And the second thing is it symbolizes the believer's union with the body of Christ. Baptism is when a believer publicly identifies with the body of Christ and says, I belong to the family of God. Baptism in this context is about a person's inclusion into the body of Christ. It's not enough to to help them come to faith. We have to help them become part of the church. Once a person puts their trust in Christ, the next step is to get them plugged into the family of God. It's to make them part of the church. It's to help them to get integrated into the body so they can participate in corporate worship. So they can grow in fellowship with other believers. So the second step is baptism or the inclusion of the believer into the body of Christ. And so practically speaking, what that means is not only would you share the hope of Christ with them when they come to faith and you help them to get plugged into church, you get them plugged into the body of believers, you plug them into worship, and you do that primarily by leading by example. Third is teaching. Jesus said, to make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. You see, it's about training. Making disciples is about teaching and training people to follow Jesus. It's about teaching them his ways and his commands and teaching them to follow those commands, which ultimately includes teaching them to do what? Go out in the world and make disciples. This is the thing that we need to realize big picture, the Great Commission has been and always will be about multiplication. 
Jesus doesn't say, go out and make converts and then just leave it there. He doesn't say, go out and, and win souls for me and just stop. He says, go out and evangelize the lost, get them plugged into the body of Christ, and then train them up to follow me, which includes them learning how to go evangelize the lost, getting those people plugged in the church, and helping them to teach those to follow him, and on and on and on. That has been the plan of the Great Commission. It has been about multiplication. And if you want to know if it works or not, we're here. <laughs> Jesus started with 12. They reached out to their, and made more disciples, and they made more disciples, and then here we are. That's the strategic plan. Now, from the ground level perspective, there's a few things I think we need to understand about making disciples. I think there's some things that we probably can put away that are probably myths. You see, what we need to realize is discipleship, whether it's evangelism, whether it's helping somebody get plugged into the church, whether it's actually teaching people, discipleship ultimately is about a person-to-person -person relationship. Brother Sam had said that relationship is the currency of heaven, and it is absolutely right. It is not God's plan for people in mass to come to faith because of some great preachers who preach a great sermon, and then somehow, someway, they figure out you know, how to follow Jesus by watching YouTube videos. I mean, it could happen, right? But the reality is, from the early church down to today, discipleship is ultimately about a person-to-person -person relationship. And this is important for us to understand. Discipleship is not the church as an organization discipling people. Discipleship is about the, the individuals in the church connecting with other individuals outside of the church and helping them to know Christ, getting plugged into the body of Christ and then training them to follow Jesus. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. The church as a living body, as a collective organism, does have a responsibility to equip the saints for ministry. It does have a responsibility to proclaim and uphold the truth of the gospel. It does have a responsibility to teach sound doctrine and build strong leaders. But making disciples is not simply the responsibility of the church staff. And I say that is because a lot of people seem to think that that's what the church is for. They think that really all that activity and the spiritual stuff happens by the people that are employed by the church or the volunteers in the church. But discipleship is not simply responsibility of the pastors or elders or church leaders. Discipleship is a responsibility of all Christians. Because discipleship is not supposed to be institutional. It's supposed to be personal. What, what, what's the complaint that we have as we lean on bigger and bigger institutions? You lose that personal connection. Like, for instance, let me just step off for just a little second and complain about something. I posted something very, I thought, uplifting on Facebook. It was a quote by Charles Spurgeon. Facebook, the entity flagged it and said, this is, this is false information. And, and, and it, it had been fact-checked, and the fact-check didn't even have anything to do at all with the picture that I posted. Right? It actually said, well, this is not true because, because um, 
um, Churchill didn't say that. I'm like, this wasn't even about Churchill, right? And so I'm going back through trying to find a way to say, Facebook, you guys are idiots, right? I mean, because this wasn't even about that. Why are you flagging me? And then it like, almost threatened me, like, you can delete this. And I'm thinking, this is the problem with gigantic corporations, is you can't get a hold of anybody. You can't, you can't have a personal relationship with them, at least, at least talk to someone. Well, by, by the way, in American Christianity, discipleship can, can get institutionalized where we have these very dry relationships. It's not supposed to be that way. Discipleship has never been about being institutional. It is about being relational and personal. Again, Jesus discipled how many men? Twelve. And one of them didn't work out. But the, the other 11, they went and they discipled a few, and then the rest of those discipled a few. On and on and on, all until 2,000 years later, we were here at First Baptist Church in Boron because of that person-to-person discipleship that got started a long time ago. So it's important for us to understand because we live in a culture that says your job is to occasionally invite some people to church and then rest upon me or the leaders in the church to, to do the rest. In fact, I heard some, some pastor say it like this. He goes, yeah, um, some people think that it's their job to catch them and then it's my job to clean them. You know? Now, don't get me wrong. I am all in to make disciples. We, as church leaders, are here to help. You want us to help? We'll jump in and help. You want me to talk to people? I will talk to people. Just ask my wife. I can talk about Jesus all day long. But I cannot effectively disciple every human being that walks through these doors. In fact, that's why 84 years after our church was built, we still have a larger sanctuary. Because if you think about this, if the members of this church did exactly what Christ called us to do, if the vast majority of the people in this community would not just simply identify as Christians in name only. If, if we actually disciple the way the Bible calls us to disciple and the church was all in and we did what, what Christ calls us individually to do, we could have five services here every Sunday and fill this place up and fill every Bible-believing church in this community and there still wouldn't be enough seats for the believers to come and worship God. But for some reason, so many people have bought into the idea that their job is to occasionally invite their neighbor and their coworker to church, by the way, which you should do, right? But then leave the rest up to me or the church staff. And it's, it's up to me somehow to evangelize them and make sure they get plugged in and that somehow we have the ability to do life-on-life -life discipleship with them. That was never the plan. Jesus's, Jesus did not plan for a select few people to make disciples. We are all called to make disciples. We are all called to evangelize. We are all called to get people plugged into the body. We are all called to teach and train others to follow Jesus. Discipleship is person to person. And discipleship is to be, is, discipleship is all about us corporately and individually passing along our faith to someone else. That's what the gospel is. Is somebody passed the gospel on to you and you received the faith that was handed down and then it is your job then to pass that faith on to someone else. 
Discipleship isn't a formal seminar, though you can gain some discipleship stuff in formal seminars. Discipleship is personally passing along the truth that you've been given, personally handing down the gifts that you've been given. It's about passing along our faith from one person to the next, one generation to the next. At the very least, disciple your children. And so being on mission for Christ means personally making, being all in to make disciples. Being on mission means selling out to do the important work that God has called us all to do, which is evangelism or telling others about Jesus. Baptism, helping other people to become part of the body of Christ and then teaching, personally teaching other people to follow Jesus wherever he leads them. Because the bottom line truth is this, there are two phases of following Christ. Two phases of following Christ. You were either being discipled or you are on mission discipling others. You're either being discipled or you're on mission discipling others. That's the two phases of the Christian life. You're either being discipled by someone or you're discipling someone else. And don't get me wrong, both of those things can happen simultaneously. In fact, the process of discipleship in training people and being trained really doesn't end in this life. We are all called to grow in knowledge and understanding of God. We are all called to pass along what we learn to someone else. But the overarching point of this is this. In the Bible, there's no such thing as a stagnant Christian. There's never in this, never... There was never this sense in the Bible that you just get saved and you learn some things about Jesus. You invite 10 people and then you're done. You just kind of like spend the rest of your life sitting in a chair, like once a week singing some hymns and listening to a sermon and going to potlucks. I mean, potlucks are awesome, right? Some of you guys can really cook. Rosemary, we always like when you bring things to the potluck but that's not what our faith is about. The Christian life is a lifetime mission to do the work that Christ has called all of us to do. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter two. He says, for by the, beginning verse eight, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. We know that one, right? We love that verse. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. That's the part we embrace. But then there's the other part that goes right with it. For, because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Remember, you weren't saved for you. You were saved for God and his glory and his purpose. And his purpose is all about you walking in the works that he's prepared for you to do. And what has he prepared for you to do? Go out in the world and make disciples. That's what he called you to do. That's what he called me to do. And yes, you might have a heart to meet people's physical needs. Praise the Lord for that. We need people to do that. We need people to feed hungry people. We need people who will counsel. We need people who will, will, will love on people who are, who are emotionally in need. 
We need people who will go out and share the love of Christ with people. But that's, that's the platform on which to stand to fulfill your real calling. Your real calling is to make disciples. The purpose is all about us walking in the works that he's prepared for us to do. And he's prepared for us to make disciples of the nations. He's called us, me and you, to this same mission. He has called us to be all in. And he promises, as we are all in, that he will be with us. Now, I realize that this can be really overwhelming. Because not every one of you are in the same place. Not every one of you are in the same state of mind. The reality is all of our walks with God are individual. One of the things that, that God has really impressed upon my heart over the last 10 years is remember that everyone is at different spots in their maturity and their faith. And I think back to how really immature I have been in my faith in my early years and how patient other people have been with me. I understand that not everyone's in the same place. Some of you may be new believers. Some of you may have been Christians for, for decades. Some of you have been discipled uh, very carefully. And some of you might not have really received much discipleship except to say, you know, pray and go to church. Some of you may be really on fire and excited about your relationship with Christ. And some of you are like, oh, I'm just trying to get through the day. Some of you might never have put your faith actually in Christ before. Or maybe you prayed some prayer when you were a kid and thought you were a believer, but you realize you don't have a relationship with Christ. Again, we're all at different places in our walk with God. And all of us have different needs. And we all have our own personalities. And so with that, with this kind of diversity, how do, how do we apply this text to our individual lives? Well, how we do that is going to be different for each one of you. What I would like to do is just walk through some, some outlines or big picture things and then help you kind of apply that to yourself. Right? Understand, I'm, I'm not concerned so much with you knowing everything that we've been talking about here. What I'm really concerned about is you identifying where you are and then taking the ne next step in your walk with Christ. And so we wanna, I want to help you to take that next step in your walk with God. And so we begin always is with the first step, which is to receive Christ. If you have not made Jesus the Lord of your life, then the rest of this mission stuff is really going to be irrelevant to you. It's not going to even like make any sense, and it's not going to even be important to you because you have a bigger problem and a bigger issue to face. If you've not trusted Jesus, you are still in your sin, and that means that you're not part of God's family and that you're his enemy. And his anger and his wrath are aimed at you and his justice hangs over your head like a 10,000 pound weight ready to fall. And if it doesn't change, then one day you will step out into this, step out of this world as we all will. And you'll stand before a holy, righteous, and just God. And he will judge you righteously for your sin and you will be found guilty and you will rightly spend eternity in the darkness of hell separated from God 
and his life-giving presence. But it doesn't have to be that way. This is the heartbreaking thing for so many people around us. It doesn't have to be this way. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. God became man so that we could, he could walk in our shoes, live the perfect life that we couldn't live, and willingly went to the cross and was tortured and killed to pay the penalty of our sins. Not only that, but his righteous life, his perfect life was granted to us and bestowed upon us so that we can be at peace with God, so that we can stand before the judge of heaven and not be ashamed. And even more than that, we're not only forgiven of our sins, but we are welcomed and reconciled to God like family members. We become parts of God's beloved family. And all of that is available to you if you would repent and believe the gospel and turn to Jesus and trust in him. If you believe that God came in the flesh and died for your sins and rose from the dead, proving that he is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that he died for your sins, you will be saved. That's, what, that's the overwhelming witness of the Bible as we spent so much time in Romans in the first six chapters. Over and over again, we're reminded that we are saved by faith in Christ. And it's really easy, actually. In fact, for those of you who are looking for a way to share this with people, I think, I think the, the ABC way of presenting the gospel is, is helpful. A stands for admit. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you're broken. Admit that you're powerless to fix it on your own. You can't save yourself, so just simply admit it. Most of the world wants to spend its life, wants to, to fool you and say, I'm a good person. That's why God's going to save me. No, you're not. Not according to God's standard. Maybe according to someone like me, you might be a good person. I'm pretty low, low bar to compare to. But. Admit that you're a sinner. And then B stands for believe. Believe the gospel. Believe what the Bible says about Jesus. Believe that he was born of a virgin and that he is God come to earth. Believe that he lived the perfect life for your sin, for your, for your righteousness and died for your sin. Believe that he did raise from the grave, physically and literally from the dead. And believe the promise that was made to you that if you'll trust him, you'll be saved. And then C is for confess. Confess or declare with your mouth that Jesus is not some great person. Confess he is God and as such he is your Lord. Which means he's the Lord of your life and that you're willing to, to say yes, Lord, and follow him. If you've not trusted Christ, that's your first step. Receive and be saved. And if you have any questions about that or you want to talk to somebody about that, please come talk to me after the service or fill out one of those information request cards and make sure I get it. I'd be happy to set up a time to talk with you. The next step is to identify with the body of Christ through baptism. If you're a believer in Christ, the next step is to go public. I want you to understand there are times that people will, will, will put, make a profession of faith and then say that they want to get baptized at the right time. Some people wait a long time. But I think that actually it's one of those things that Christ commands us to do. If, you're in, if you've come to faith in Christ, then be baptized. And if you were someone who's interested in learning more about baptism, again, grab one of those information request cards and then turn it into me and we'll have that conversation.
The third thing, the third step is to become a member in the church. We are all called to become members of a local church. The fact is that we need to belong to a church family. We need people in our lives who can hold us accountable. We need people in our lives who can love us through the hard times. We need people in our lives that we can also encourage. Church membership and belonging to local church is important because it's about making a commitment to do life with a group of people. It's about a commitment to serving the Lord in a local context where you can be equipped and equip others. If you're someone, again, that's not a member of this church, but who is willing to take that step, I would encourage you, again, to let me know. Either you can talk to me after the service or fill out one of those information request cards. And then finally, you need to either get discipled or start discipling other people. If you're someone that, I, I, like, pastor, I mean, I've been in church my whole life, but no one's really, like, grabbed me by the hand and helped me walk through what it means to live the Christian life. There are people in this church who are willing to come alongside you individually and lovingly walk you through that. We have a few people that are actively discipling other people who take time to do Bible studies together, who take time to have lunch together, who take time to answer questions and invest. If you have not been discipled, then I would encourage you to let us know and that you're interested in becoming discipled. And also, if you're not currently discipling someone and you are of the faith, even if you're still a relatively young believer, you still have a part to play. I want to help you to build those relationships with other people so that you can then pass along what you know. This, brothers and sisters, is how we are to fulfill the mission that Christ has given all of us. And so again, I would ask you, if you are interested in disciple-making or being discipled, by all means, fill out one of those information request cards. You can put them on the back table back there in the offering plate if you want, or you can give them directly to me. But either way, we all ought to be discipling or being discipled. Now that you know all of that, and now that you know that Jesus is God in the flesh by his authority, He's called us to take part in the mission to save sinners by fulfilling the Great Commission. Now that we know all of this and that God and His His will and plan for your life, that you glorify Him by fulfilling the Great Commission, the only question left to ask yourself then is, are you willing to be all in or are you not? And brothers and sisters, that's the question I can't answer for you. And I do understand that all of you are at a different place in your life. I do understand that there are times when there are things in your life that makes it seem like it's impossible. But you simultaneously can be all in for Christ and still have challenges in your lives. In fact, it's by being in the service of the Lord that you'll find at some of the times of the greatest healing. That when you're loving other people for Christ, that you will find that God's grace is being poured out into your own life. And so my encouragement to you is to say yes. It's my encouragement to you to join us at First Baptist Church to fulfill this mission. Again, we're not all called to get out on the street corner with sandwich boards, but we all can 
love our neighbors, and then take that moment to share with them the hope that we have. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world. 